Open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 1 through 20. And that'll be our text for this morning. Today we're looking at the second in a series of four miracles in Mark's gospel. Each miracle serving to focus Jesus' answer, Mark's answer, and so our answer to the question, who is this man? And if last week's passage was dramatic with the calming of the sea from the boat, this week's passage is no less dramatic or surprising. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Well, I'm sure Jesus' disciples are ready to step out of the boat and onto the shore In the previous episode, these fishermen who knew the sea well considered themselves for a time as good as dead, and they should know. Even with a miracle worker on board, they were terrified. But they underestimated Jesus' care, if not also his power. Only for a moment, though, Jesus woke up and put the storm down with a word. The storm was powerful. Jesus, apparently very much more so. And they feared him. Only God knows how those next moments and hours in the boat went. 
Perhaps they talked, perhaps they sat quiet. There was plenty of Jesus to ponder. And now at this morning's ep- as this morning's episode opens, the boat has touched shore in the country of the Gerasenes. The men step out of the boat. They could use some rest. Often Jesus would retreat with them by boat to a place to rest. But this visit was not for rest. There is more of Christ to ponder yet. Jesus has an appointment for an exorcism. They were ready to step out of the boat, but they were not likely ready for what was about to happen next. Verse 2, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And what unfolds in this episode unfolds in four parts, at least for the sake of our sermon. Part one, a strong man. A strong man, verse one through five. That's what he was. He's described as incredibly strong. And of course, strong is relative. So how strong was the guy really? Well, let's take a look at him. He's probably used to being stared at, so it's okay. Look at his arms and his legs. They're scarred. They're mutilated. You can't tell if it's dirt or hardened blood. And it's probably a mixture of both. Often we read the townspeople attempted to restrain him with chains and with shackles, but he broke them and wrenched them apart. It's not a normal human being. And even now he scrapes himself with rocks continually. Continually. This is not an oiled up bodybuilder strong man. You imagine a strong guy and you imagine him there in a little outfit and... You know, not at all. This guy's a monster. He's approaching monster-like presentation, not bodybuilder presentation. So I have the right picture in mind. I read this description and I can't help but recall Peter's words, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he has found someone in this man and he's feasting on his life, which is in tatters. So look at his arms and legs. Look at what he's wearing. If he's wearing clothes at all, they're torn, worn, bloody, and they're disgusting. He does not bathe. He does not change his clothes. He does not look for a new outfit in the morning. Look on the ground around him. If these restraints were put on him among the tombs, perhaps you'd see shackles and metal pieces left from his uh, wrenching them off. And look where he lives. On the ground around him are tombs. He lives among the dead. This is where you live when you're not welcome anywhere else. You can't hurt these people and they can't object. For several months last spring, Madeline would ask me, almost daily it seemed, my daughter, to take me, take, to, for me to take her to the sprinklers. Take, take me to the sprinklers. I didn't know where she was talking about. And I finally asked Christy, she's asking me constantly about these sprinklers. Do you know where this is? Oh, yes, yes. It's around the corner. So on my way home from work, maybe weeks later, the right season approached. The sprinklers came on at the local cemetery. It looked like a fun place. It looked like a park, like a kid's park to her, all to herself. So I gunned it home. I might have done that anyways. But I gunned it home. I ran inside. I said, sweetheart, get your sandals on. I said, babe, I'm taking her to the cemetery. Um, The sprinklers are on. I don't know how long they'll be on. And we went and ran around for 20 minutes and the water was a blast. 
And at some point, I said, now, sweetheart, you know what's under these stones. What? A dead bodies. There are hundreds of dead bodies all around this field. And she just thought, you know, it was another day calling dad out on nonsense. Uh, he's trying to fool her. And I thought, well, you know, perhaps she hasn't thought about death or entertained the idea of where these things go and that they go under the ground. Or maybe she's just, you know, intuiting. Death is scary. It's dark. It's dirty. And this is a fun place. And there are flowers. The grass is green. The sprinklers are on. And we're laughing. Cemeteries can be beautiful places, but these tombs are not green with grass watered by sprinklers. These tombs were not an inviting place for children decorated with bouquets and polished rock. These tombs were the last place that you would want to be, and these tombs are where this man lives, and frankly where he belongs. These tombs are his home. And if you lived in the area but didn't have the wherewithal to look at him, you'd listen to him still because you wouldn't have a choice. Day and night, he cries out, it says. The disciples likely heard him from the water well before they reached the shore, if the proximity of the shore to the tombs was close enough, as I suspect it may have been. The strong man had a strong voice. There could hardly be a sadder sound or more vivid picture of a man far from God. And there are all kinds of signs here that he is far from God, an unclean spirit in Gentile territory, an unclean place among the dead who are considered unclean. There's a herd of pigs next door, and those are unclean. And by unclean, I mean that within the Jewish system, these things are unacceptable to God. This man was far from God. The disciples with Jesus would only wonder why on earth they might have come here. If there ever was a condemned man, this was him. If there ever was a helpless and hopeless man, a man to leave alone, this was him. He is strong, but he is strong in his resistance to God, and that's why he's strong in resistance to help. No one could bind him, Mark says. No one could subdue him, he says again. He's as good as dead. There was no human answer for his problem. And so he lives among the tombs. We see a strong man. Part two. A strong word. A strong word. Verses six through 13. So Jesus gets out of the boat and this guy starts running at him. He's gunning it. That wouldn't have looked good to the disciples. This area isn't so big that they wouldn't necessarily have known who this was. This was that guy. And here he comes, uh, headlong for Jesus. This scene reminds me of a dramatic comic book character, Face Off. Two men with superhuman strength, one good and one bad face off. On this side, Jesus, the rural carpenter, steps out of the boat after putting down a storm with a word. And on the other side, a nameless man filled with demons who terrifies everyone and sleeps with the dead. In his free time, he likes to scrape himself with sharp stones. What on earth is about to go down? Here he comes, verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And what does he say? Verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, now intelligible, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. These demons knew exactly who Jesus was and their confession of him is one of the best we've seen yet, better than any on the lips of those who follow Jesus sincerely, even in faith. They know who he is, but as James says, they shudder on their face. Jesus set foot on the land, and at first sight, Jesus couldn't call, didn't call back the weather to strike this guy down and put him away. He called out the evil in him to leave. Come out, ekbalo. Jesus knows the man's problem. He does not try to wrestle him. He gives him a command. He's not really talking to the man, but to the spirit and spirits inside the man. Verse 9, And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. That is the demon that replied. And so we've just learned two things about demons. One, they've got names. Two, they're territorial. There are two kinds of reactions going on inside the room right now that I can hear in my head, but you can't hear. You probably only hear one in your head. The first reaction says, bring it on. I love hearing about demons. How can I find out their names and where they gather? This is the best part of the Bible and the key to the Christian life, right here. Territorial demons, you've got books of that thick. Uh, how to map out demon territories and get their names and, and have power over them. Please remember that demons lie. The second reaction says, I believe in demons, but no way am I like those people who pay any attention or talk about them or care about them. Well, I'm going to disappoint you both in order. So those who say, bring it on, Jesus didn't need to know the demon's name, although he asked for it. It's a part of the story. His name, the demon's name, is telling us something about what's going on in this man. A legion is a military term. 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen would make up a legion. Doesn't mean that's exactly how many demons the guy had. He had many demons, and that's the point. But Jesus will cast them out just the same, only knowing the name of the one. And it wasn't that Jesus needed the name in order to control the demon, as some might suggest. Most importantly, there is no instruction anywhere in the New Testament about doing this kind of thing to demons. Paul does warn Timothy that in latter days, some will turn aside from the faith to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And before the sermon's over, I will actually in some fashion, I've done this on purpose, reference all of the relevant material to demons in the New Testament, past the Gospels. Now, to those who say, who cares? Please take note that Scripture says there were many demons inside this man. Demons are real. Demons, they're real. This guy was filled with demons. And Jesus is talking to a demon. Is that weird? Yeah, well, all kinds of stuff is weird in the Bible. What's the equivalent today? I have no idea. Given that they're territorial, unlike Gentile territory, I would suspect that there are certain places in the world given to certain false gods that may see something like this to a greater or lesser degree. What happens next would be even more unbelievable than meeting a man with demons if it weren't actually in the Bible. 
verse 11 through 13. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. It's likely these demons didn't think they were asking for their death. They thought they were asking for a transfer. How about all those pigs? All Jesus has done so far is get out of the boat and speak, come. And they respond, transfer us. Jesus' word carries with it authority. But they're no match. Sometimes you'll hear a, a story about a car crash where one car is decimated and the other car, because it's huge, an SUV or some giant truck, is untouched. It's kind of like what's going on here. Maybe a better picture would be um, two pro football teams get on the field and right before the kickoff, one team hits the ground and pleads for mercy. I don't think that's ever happened. That's kind of like what's going on here. You know, when a game is forfeited, it usually doesn't say anything about the winning team, at least in kindergarten soccer. It means a few kids were sick or their sisters had dance recital that Saturday morning. In this case, 2,000 demons, perhaps, or many demons, are concentrated in one man, and they are no match for Jesus' word. Now, they may not have been totally submissive or humble and bowing down. There are some indications that maybe they weren't. But they're still resigned to their fate. The Son of God, whom they know is the Son of God, has said, come out, and they're coming out. It's over. A TKO. A blowout. That's what we see here. They see Jesus and plea for mercy, and they want to stay in the area. Apparently, this area is more hospitable for demons. Paul in 1 Corinthians and John in Revelation speaks of pagan offerings of sacrifices to demons. And John in Revelation will talk about demon haunts where demons are worshipped. And Roman territory, Gentile territory like this would be thick with the worship of false gods. They like this joint and suggest a group of these pigs and Jesus grants their request. But they would not have expected it mean their immediate destruction. And in this we see a few things. We see just how strong was the force that possessed this man in the tombs. Strong enough that when these demons left and entered 2,000 pigs, the pigs went absolutely nuts and ran headlong into the water, something they would not have done otherwise. That is a force. And it was concentrated in this man. This poor man. We also see how strong Jesus' word is how strong Jesus' word is. Yes, strength is relative, and we've seen how strong the man was taken by these invisible forces. And yet he's no match. No one could subdue the man. Chains could not hold him. He could not even hold himself back from mutilating his own body. But he's no match for the word of Jesus. The wind and the waves obey Jesus' word, and this man, these demons, obey Jesus' word. The victory is immediate and it's decisive. So how will this man and those in the surrounding community who had labored to make sure they were safe from him and tried to restrain him, how will they respond? 
how will they react? So we've seen a strong man. We've heard a strong word. Now in part three, we witness a strong reaction. A strong reaction. Verses 14 through 18. And we can only imagine, right? The guy will be much better off without these demons. Huge relief. And the community ought to be relieved as well. For Jesus has restrained a man, in fact, done much more than they could have ever imagined for him and for them in restraining him and renewing him. What better way to kick off your ministry in a region, right? This should do it. Campaign. He's launching a ministry. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. The one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Please, just go. Go. That's one response. You do everything you can to restrain a man. Jesus delivers him whole and they find him. And I love this description, sitting there. It's almost like he never sat down. Restless. Clothed now. And in his right mind. Beautiful picture of conversion. He's wearing clothes. He's sitting still. He's looking people in the eyes. He's not crying out with sounds and nonsense, but speaks plainly now. He's restored beautifully, wonderfully, miraculously supernaturally restored. And let's remember that this story, in this story we see Jesus' victory over demons and maybe that's the especially interesting and unique part of these 20 verses. But Jesus did not just come to defeat his enemies but to rescue sinners. The man is not peripheral to the story but his rescue is at the heart of the story. Jesus cares for the man and he's clothed him. He's put him in his right mind. Jesus has done it. How will the people respond? They were afraid. The disciples were afraid of a killer storm and more afraid of the one who tells the storm what to do. And these people were afraid of this man. No one could subdue him and yet they are more afraid of the one who actually can. Why would this be so? What's there to be afraid of? Perhaps it's because of all the bacon Jesus just totally wasted. I mean, good night. I I meant to do the math on it, like the average weight of a pig um, times about 2,000 and then throw out a number for pounds of bacon. I didn't do it. This would have been a decent part of the local economy, actually, if not the backbone for the local economy. It would have been a big deal. It's a big deal anyways. 2,000 pigs drowning in the water. Water's probably no good now. If we get the geography right, these pigs were probably food for a local Roman military encampment. If we understand the geography right, there was a military base of sorts here. Food for the military. But Mark actually doesn't draw attention to these features, even if these things might have been in the minds of the original readers. What Mark does draw attention to is the man's appearance, the man's restoration, his soundness now of mind. That's what's terrifying to them. 
And isn't this the sort of the message so far? Jesus performs miracles and he is often rejected by those who look on. Let's think about this. The people preferred life with a demon-possessed man in their midst to life with Jesus in their midst. Jesus was a disruption to the way of life that they had built and they had managed to establish and what had been normal for them, even if it included this crazy and dangerous local man. Jesus threatened their way of life. And oh, how revealing this is of the human heart. And isn't that what the parable of the soils was placed in this story for just one chapter earlier? To show us that there are different responses to the word, to Jesus' coming kingdom. This is hard soil that when Jesus heals a man in this way and demonstrates his absolute authority over the unseen realm and they insist that he leave. And it's also revealing about the work of Satan among us, his demonic work among us. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and these all exist, if they're not roughly synonymous, the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Invisible spiritual evil forces are at play in our daily lives, in our temptations, and in our sins. And so Paul says, resist the devil. Be alert. Be sober-minded. And here in Ephesians, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Faith, the sword of the spirit, the gospel of peace. And he says this to believers, to be strong in the strength of the Lord and in the strength of his might, because this is what we war against. That's to believers. Unbelievers don't even wrestle, though. Satan enslaves their lives and blinds the minds of unbelievers, Scripture says, so that they can't even see that what is evil in them is evil. They cannot see it for what it is. The man scraping himself is a very sobering picture of the kinds of things, and it's a metaphor of what Satan leads us into in our sin if he gets his way. It's because of Satan and his invisible work that these villagers would prefer Jesus to go away. And don't we do this with Christ ourselves whenever we decide that this or that area of our lives is an area in which we would prefer things to stay the same instead of come under his rule? We'll keep scratching ourselves with stones like we did among the tombs. And if this is actually the story of your life, then identify with this man among the tombs or identify with these villagers. Consider that these villagers were actually worse off than the man among the tombs. For they, recognizing Jesus' authority, would send him away. But thankfully, and because of God's mercy, not all the ground around Jesus is hard. Not everyone would be happier if Jesus would just go away. Verse 18, 
and he was getting into the boat, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. The people beg, Jesus, please go away. And this man begs, please, Jesus, take me with you. Jesus is the boss of everything seen and unseen, whether we like it or not. The question is, what will we say with our life? Please, Jesus, why don't you just go away? Or will we say, please take me with you? And there are only those two options at the end of the day. There is no third option that says, please do stay, but stay right there and please don't touch anything. Or thank you, but that will be enough. He's revealing who he really is and people are reacting and we're seeing the mercy of God and the hardness of the human heart, hardness of the ground. Whatever change Jesus may bring for your recognition of him as the true Lord of all, it's good change. If there are renovations you don't want, it's because you've grown to like the smell of the cemetery. But don't fear Christ, fear your sense of smell. But your faith in him and let the word take root. We've seen a strong man. We've, seen, we've heard a strong word. We've witnessed a strong reaction And now part four, a strong message, a strong message, verses 19 through 20. This man begs Jesus to take him along, and Jesus is looking for followers, right? Perfect, a loyal follower. What will he say? Verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Well, often in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will not allow people to speak. Among the Jews, he didn't want things to uh, blow up too prematurely. He's timing his own death. In this case, Jesus insists that he speak. And to whom is he to go and speak? Jesus says, go home to your friends. His home, his friends. He has a home and he has friends. Who knows how long it's been since he's been home? Who knows how long it's been since he's been with his friends in any normal fashion? He wasn't welcome among them or there anymore. And who knows his story? We might guess that this man through sin and idolatry made himself a welcome home for a legion of demons. We're not told. They happily found a home in him. Verse 19, go home to your friends. Jesus believes in friendship evangelism. Friendship evangelism. And it's a good thing. There's a certain logic to it. The first people he would go to would be his friends and those at home. And it's only reasonable that he would share the gospel with them first. So there's a certain logic to that priority. But as we'll see, it's certainly not where our gospel sharing stops. We make friends for the purpose of evangelism too. And don't miss, now that friendship evangelism involves words and not just a way of life, he was to speak. And what was he to say? I love this, verse 19. Tell them, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man had one job. You have one job. Tell And this will not be hard. 
For next to being with Jesus, the next best thing would have to be telling others about how much Jesus had done for him. Until he did, he told without fear. He wasn't afraid of people not liking him. He's over that. They shooed Jesus away. Jesus was not, look at what Jesus did and he was rejected by the community and yet this man is going to go open his mouth about Jesus. He's going to invite a diversity of responses. And so that's just the nature of it. That's just the nature of sharing the gospel. Sometimes you know you're doing it right when you get a bad response and it's never to rejoice in or settle with something to persist in prayer for. But it is an indication that the gospel is clear when some think it's foolish and some think it's a stumbling block and others believe. Without fear. He had nothing and he's been given everything and he knows it. He did it without delay. A day didn't turn into weeks, didn't turn into months, didn't turn into years and then finally try to bring it up. I found that it's easier to bring up the gospel in Christ earlier rather than later in a new relationship. And to lean into and embrace the awkwardness in a friendly and winsome way. We can wait for opportunities and we should be ever vigilant to look for them. But we should not think that God would plan our relationships such that we would not share the gospel for perhaps years in our closest relationships and friendships So let's do the hard work of creatively thinking about how to open up meaningful conversations with friends and neighbors and coworkers and family about deep spiritual things. To ask them what they believe and what their story is and how they got where they're at. Loving them with their life and loving them with our ears and listening to them and getting to know them so that we can have a platform to share the gospel with them. He did it without delay. There's no reason to wait forever. Tell. And he told without stopping. He probably went to his home and his friends first, but notice that he proclaimed Jesus throughout the Decapolis, which was a string of ten cities. He just kept going. There's no reason to stop. It was no obligation to him. It was a joy. And for as much as Jesus has done for us, we have much to share. We know the story he would have told because we know what the Lord had done for this man and how he had mercy on him. But how about you, You probably don't have a story about demon possession and exorcism and the drowning of 2,000 pigs at your conversion, probably. But many of us have equally horrifying stories of where sin has taken us so that when we read the description of this man, we actually sort of see ourselves. Sin was allowed in God's providence. He allowed us to go that far. But for many of us, our sin was not allowed to take us as far as it could, although If what's in our imaginations were put to reality, we know how wicked we are. Many of us don't have a horrifying story, but that's okay, don't worry. You've actually received more mercy. You have received more mercy, if you're in Christ, than this man had at the moment. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And because of God's mercy, Scripture says you were made alive. That's a pretty big deal. A dead person be made alive. Spiritually, dead. You were a slave to sin. Because of his mercy, Christ has set you free. You were condemned, and because of his mercy, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You were walking in darkness, walking in darkness, and because of his mercy, God has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Scripture says 
The Bible is littered with these in the New Testament. Contrasts, and they're all true of you, no matter what age the Lord has saved you. Praise God that sin was not allowed to come into full flower in your life, if that's the case. And what he has done for you in order to show this mercy is fantastic, and we can't miss that. So to tell others about the mercy God has had on us and what he's done for us means talking about a cross, because a cross was crucial for the mercy that he would show. He put his son on a cross for us, the powerful one that calms the sea and casts out demons with his word. On the cross, God took all of our uncleanness and put it on Jesus. On the cross, the fury of Satan that was only seen in small form in the demons that drove the pigs into the water to drown them. That fury was unleashed on Jesus. And that really nothing compared to the wrath of God against sin unleashed on Jesus on the cross. And all for us. God put our filthy clothes on Christ so that we might be clothed in his righteousness and in our right mind. The author of Hebrews shows us the connection between Jesus' victory over death and the devil and his rescue of us as sinners. They go together. You see, Jesus couldn't just come down and speak words and forgiveness be offered, though he offered forgiveness. It required something of him. Through death, Jesus, God might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He had to be made like his brothers, Jesus did, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, if God is going to release Satan's grip on you, the grip of his jaw on a sinner, it will have to come by means of a cross where God saves the sinner by taking care of their sin. And that's what he does for us in Jesus. And after he did this for us on the cross, Jesus was put in a tomb for us. And after the tomb, Jesus was raised from the dead and then he ascended to the Father where he's seated. Where? Above all, rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that's named in this age and in the one to come. Jesus is now seated victoriously over all invisible forces. They are his. Every demon is under his feet. He has bound the strong man behind the strong man in this story and he's plundering his house and he's taking people with him. This is the mercy of God toward sinners. It's a life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we have much to tell. We have much to tell. We have only to read the scriptures to become better acquainted with all that God has done for us and saved us from. But maybe you're still the devil's food. Maybe he is munching out hard on your life. And the picture of the man among the tombs is a fair picture of you, metaphorically speaking. I really like him. You may not scratch yourself with stones, but maybe you cut yourself. But the same power that enslaved the man enslaves you in your sin. You mutilate yourself with sin. You isolate yourself from others, even under the same roof. You do things in the dark that would destroy you and others 
that you and maybe only the close people closest to you know about and restraints do not work. Or worse, maybe you're like the more presentable townspeople that shooed Jesus away. I say worse because of the hardness of their heart. You feel great about your life and how it's going. And you would just assume things stay exactly as they are. Maybe even God has put someone in your way whose life he through Christ has turned upside down. And maybe you even give God and Jesus credit for the transformation that you can't otherwise explain. But it's not for you. It's not for you. You're right to identify either with the man in the tomb, among the tombs, or with these villagers. They're both a living, living parable for all of us outside of Christ. And maybe you are concerned, though, in hearing all of this. Maybe you would like for Jesus to stay, to understand him better, and maybe you're intrigued by his authority. And maybe you're, you're done scraping yourself. Maybe you're done with your comfortable life and are wondering what it might look like for Jesus to turn it upside down as your Lord. Maybe you figure you're too unlikely a character though, too unworthy, perhaps too far gone. You know what you've done. Well, when you get home today, here's a suggestion. Open up the Bible to the third gospel, the gospel of Mark. Second gospel, the gospel of Mark. Turn to chapter 5, then read verses 1 through 20. They'll be familiar, we read them this morning. Then ask if that objection still stands, if you still have that reservation that you're out of Jesus' reach. It's actually sort of the point of the passage. Jesus came to an unclean place to deliver an unclean man. He sent unclean pigs into the water and he clothed this man so that he sits there in his right mind. It's a beautiful picture of conversion. Jesus converts the unlikely. It doesn't matter how close you are to the tomb, unless you're in one, there is time to stop begging Jesus to leave and instead to beg him for his mercy, which he offers. So don't give the devil another day of feeding on your life. Beg for his mercy. He's an exorcist. He frees people from sin and the devil's grip. Then go home with a strong message. Tell your friends all that the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Do it without fear. Do it without delay. And do it without stopping. And by God's grace and because of his kindness in our prayers, perhaps some will marvel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word from the scriptures. We thank you for these 20 verses in the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel and what they reveal to us about this man, Jesus. The one who not only has authority over the physical world, but authority over the unseen world. Authority to cast out demons. Authority to fix spiritual problems. And we thank you that Mark's gospel was not done here and Jesus' work was not done here. 
But he did this on his way to a cross where through his death, he would defeat the one who has the power of death, the devil, as our high priest who dies for our sins and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, which is every one of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.